Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back. It's just me today. I'm going to just simply be introducing our student special episodes for this week and next week. And after that, we'll be back creating our original Latinx Visions content. So as we gear up for the new semester, we here at Latinx Visions will be releasing special content created by our Baruch College students from over the past year. Now, this work comes from different sections of LTS 1003, Latin America, an Institutional and Cultural Survey, LTS 3012, Latinas, a Social and Cultural Survey, and LTS 3085, Latinx Screens, Film, TV, and video. For each of these classes, we offer students the option of completing a podcast episode for their final project. Other options might include a paper, a video, or even a social media-based project, depending on the course. Since students are assigned to listen to podcasts throughout the semester, they grow accustomed to what they sound like, and it helps them plan out how they want to present their own research in this medium. For most students, creating a podcast was something they had never done before, and we're proud of them for stepping outside of their comfort zone and trying something new. At the end of the semester, we asked students who submitted a podcast episode for their permission to share their research on this platform. A handful of students granted us this permission. That's what you're going to be hearing over the next two weeks. This week, we'll be presenting three student projects, and the following week, there will be two more. Their work is presented here as they created it with very minimal editing for sound levels and similar such issues. We have not edited them for content. So in this episode, we feature projects by LTS 3012 student Emily Giler, LTS 3085 students Jalen Bailey and Naomi Ortiz, and LTS 1003 students Paulina Ausencion, Alexis Baker, and Caitlin Caraballo. First up will be Emily's project, which focuses on the representation of responsibility versus happiness for Latinas in entertainment. Throughout her segment, she talks about the value of honest Latina representation in movies, books, and comics. Next, Jalen and Naomi will speak on the film Gun Hill Road and the effects of Latino culture on the LGBTQIA identifying youth. In particular, they address how conflicts between these identities can potentially lead to negative consequences. And finally, Paulina, Alexis, and Caitlin speak on New Yorican identity. They discuss the history of the cultural and intellectual movement known as the New Yorican movement and the impact it had on the Puerto Rican community within New York City. So with just those brief introductions, we'll now let the students speak for themselves. This podcast will be about the representation of responsibility versus happiness of Latinas in entertainment. In many cultures, but most specifically the Latino community, we see young women needing to prioritize the needs of their family above their own in an attempt to provide for themselves and others. Many Latinas tend to feel alone with these obligations, 
as I can attest to. But as you grow older, you begin to see you are like so many other young girls. Since meeting new people and socializing is not really part of this forced quote-unquote lifestyle, one of the forms of solace left is entertainment, and that can be anything ranging from movies to books to comics, um, any really form of entertainment. And while the goal of films and comics generally are to entertain, there is a huge importance and benefit as a Latina in being able to see yourself and your own reality and entertainment rather than this idealistic lifestyle. To put it in a more broad perspective, let's talk about the realm of young responsibility and caretaking. While needing to be responsible at a young age is shown in the Latino community, this concept really comes down to the gender level. Historically, men have always been given priority in many aspects of life. There are more general examples, such as men deciding if they want to stick around for their children, um, but there are more minuscule examples that you can see in your everyday family dynamic where your brother or your father may not know how to clean a bathroom um, or daughters needing to learn how to cook for their future spouses and even serving the plates to their fathers and needing a protector and the line goes on and on. Since many young women can attest to having early responsibilities, um, and that can be from any ethnicity, I want to highlight Sai and Romero's article, Family Responsibilities Among Latina College Students from Immigrant Families, where she mentioned, or they mentioned, a recent study that shows that Latina adolescents more often fulfilled family obligations than did European American or Asian American adolescents. Girls are more often required to help with household chores, translate for their parents, and care for their younger siblings. Sai and Romero provide support for the claims that Latinas need to pick up essentially where others left off. And while we can see the we can see this issue of, of young women needing to be responsible from all ethnicities, we see this topic is prevalent in the Latino community. Furthermore, Easton Hamill in Sibling Caretaking Among Mexican-American Youth Conditions That Promote and Hinder Personal and School Success mentioned that this type of parenting role has raised concerns because it often leads to acquiring other adult-like behaviors such as smoking, drinking, alcohol, dropping out of school, and early entry into the workforce. We see this connection in the film as Mari in Mosquita y Mari, she needs to go to the extreme of even having sex to pay for her rent and take care of her family. And that is one of the more uh, severe examples, while there is many other where she's just working on a corner handing out flyers. Um, but this type of parenting role has pushed her in a eight different age group that is way beyond her years. Family obligations tend to fall on Latina women and can sway them away from that typical lifestyle of their age group, which in turn just feels isolating and it raises the question of where are they, where are they supposed to find an outlet and people that can share their same experiences and feelings. 
Mosquita y Mari is a film on Netflix by Aurora Guerrero, a queer Chicana herself. And we see a lot of Aurora Guerrero in this movie and how she has put her experiences so we can kind of step into her world and see what that was like. And we see that Mari can't really relate to other girls' issues. Yolanda's focus, her primary focus, is only school because she was blessed enough to have parents who, you know, two parents who are or have somewhat of a stable income and her focus should be school. And then they make that clear to her. But we see that Mari falls behind and it's just something that others don't need to worry about. Um, it doesn't leave her any time to do child and teenager things. And the only time she really does them is between work, after school um, and with Yolanda. And while, a and while a counter argument can be that this is only a movie and, and we should look at it as this only for entertainment, well, we see that there is truth behind this movie. As, as Elaine Rivera and Lynn Neary have a conversation, um, which the NPR published titled Why Are Young Latinas at Risk, where Rivera mentions that there are many times severe there are many times that Latinas serve as surrogate mothers in their home, and it's usually first and second generation Latinas, and it causes this sense of lack of identity. They don't know who they are, so you have a lot of young women out there who are feeling hopeless, um, and it just shows that it isn't a movie. This is real life, and many people look to these movies to see themselves and the representation they deserve. This form of entertainment is really helpful as you can see realism and authenticity for a topic that is not really spoken much about. Um, when you don't relate to those in your circle, your friends don't have the same responsibilities or they don't. Even when you're different age groups, you feel as though you can't relate. This is just on a different level because you, if you are both 13 and 13, then there should be common ground. Um, but seeing your struggles in a top film such as the, with this huge corporation Netflix makes a huge drastic difference in the isolation that you were previously living in. To show a contrasting entertainment piece, I want to talk about The Life and Times of America Chavez Volume 1. This comic shows a superhero lifestyle of saving people as your job. America Chavez is very happy and content about how much good she is doing for the world. And that's understandable. That's that's what a superhero is and that's what we, all we've known. But while there is Latina representation in this comic and on a superficial level, it's just not much to relate on as a Latina. Um, and Babic in comics says... In comics as history comics as literature roles of the comic book and scholarship society and entertainment says that chapters on the gendered racial and political definitions within comics will bring us one step closer in bridging the gaps in literature and history on the discursive mainstream of popular culture and i just want to touch upon the fact that she's expanding on the importance on bridging both areas that will be much more beneficial for any type of audience. And just to add further examples of comics that have 
more substance and more importance um you could even see in the amazing spider-man volume 36 which is focused on 9-11 and its societal impact and even further i want to talk about the comic of miss marvel marvel snapshot which talks about her being muslim and coming from immigrant pakistani parents which is i'm sure something that was very helpful for young pakistani women to feel like they were being represented um baker tom baker in 17 amazing true life stories told in comics says that comic books have given us stories of people with supernatural abilities cartoon animals going on epic adventures sci-fi myths beyond your wildest imagination but aren't you a bit bored by all that and i also want to raise that question because while it's all amazing and it's very entertaining is it doing any benefits for our underrepresented groups in society while i thoroughly enjoyed reading the life and time of america chavez um it just seems like a small win for the latina community and i mean as a latina i'll take any win but that's just about it it doesn't really dive into the topics that need actual representation like just how hard it can be to grow up get an education and fit in like many others can in conclusion i think entertainment is great and i think many of us use it as a distraction and just plain fun but it's more beneficial to our society if young women and men are growing up with entertainment that represents themselves and does not idealize their life. Um, we see that there's a disparity between men and women, and Latinas are left to assume a position of responsibility way beyond their years. Mosquita y Mari shows a life many young Latina women can relate to, and America, Ch the life and time of America Chavez shows something that just isn't as relatable. And we see the benefits from comics that are based um, and that reference important realistic topics. Um, and just as a Latina myself, I felt more of a connection with Mosquita y Mari and Mari's struggle to make ends meet than I did with reading The Life and Time of America Chavez, which I thoroughly enjoyed both. But the topic is about representation and entertainment. And I think the benefits were more prevalent in Mosquita y Mari because it was just more authentic to what an actual lifestyle of many Latina women can be today. So, um, welcome to our podcast featuring Jalen, Bailey, and Naomi Ortiz. So today we will, be, we will be discussing the effect that Latino culture has on youth that are also part of the LGBTQ plus community and how these two conflicting identities result in youth rebellion and family separation. The two sources that we will be refer referencing today are the film Gun Hill Road by Rashad Ernesto Green and Cindy Cruz's essay, When Does Resistance Begin? Now, it's important to note that the filmmaker and author that we're using to highlight this topic are both of Latino origin, and they work, work closely with other Latinos so they understand firsthand the beliefs and expectations of Latino culture. Green a Latino director that uses his creative ability to depict Latino youth and their struggles in the Bronx, which, he's, which he is actually native to, and Cruz, who writes on her own experience as a mentor of LGBTQ plus Latinos and shares their firsthand accounts as a way to shed light 
from their experience. It is commonly known that Latinos still strongly believe in a male-dominated household. The men make all the decisions and they control and tell us what to do. And you must always respect and obey their words. As a child of Puerto Rican and Dominican parents, I can testify that this familial structure is still very much prominent in my generation. Jalen, I know you're not of Latin descent, but does your ethnic culture share a similar structure? In fact, my ethnic culture of Caribbean descent does share a similar role. Men hold the say in everything, and the women do do majority of the work around the house, which is controlled by the men. Men want their female partners to cook and clean, to be cautious of them in public, to practice monogamy, to raise their children, to contribute to and manage the household money, and even treat their friends as if they are family. Because males are thought as the breadwinners, they are viewed as they are viewed as superior to the women in their household. They are the ones that usually make the final decisions and have more power and say in the relationship. It's actually really interesting to see the overlap of beliefs between these et- ethnic groups. So before we discuss what we're, so before we discuss what we find are important te- takeaways of the words that we're about to analyze, I'm going to quickly summarize the film. In Gun on Gunhill Road. An ex-con returns home to his family after a three-year sentence in jail. He attempts to reestablish the bond that existed with his family before he left, but struggles to adapt with the change in relationships. His son's sexual transition puts their relationship to a strain as he struggles to accept his new identity as a transgender woman. He ends up forcefully trying to reshape his original gender, and by doing that, the father pushes his son away. This film, although fictional, could be eas- could easily be seen as a mere experience. Some of the many stories Cruz recounts on behalf of the people she worked with in her essay, which discusses the ways LGBTQ teens resist due to failure of acceptance within their families and how they take to the streets as their new home. That was a great summary. Thank you. So now that we have a little more knowledge on the works we're discussing today, the question that comes into play is how Latino culture affects LGBTQ plus youth through acts of defiance and household attachment. In Gun Hill Road, Vanessa, which is the main character, confides. She confides in this club where she reads poetry that allows her to express her true feelings and intentions. The clubs allow her to feel safe in her own skin and be around people such as their friends who don't have an issue with their sexuality. They accept her and encourage her to be herself more rather than being at home where she feels as if she's being stripped of her own identity. She also spends time at a nightclub where she dresses completely as a female, applying makeup and having her hair loose. In this space, she is no longer the transgender woman, but just a confident woman having fun and enjoying herself. Yeah, those were definitely some impactful scenes of the movie. Much like Vanessa's methods of acting up, as Cruz analyzes this behavior and says, this, and says that their acts of resistance aren't obvious signs, but rather smaller ones. This often led to the eventual separation of youth from their homes where they no longer feel accepted. You can see that that represented in the film where Vanessa actually runs away from her home due to the feeling of rejection from her father. She runs away to stay at her secret boyfriend's house 
where at this point in the film, she feels safe there as he treats her and makes love to her as Vanessa. Yeah, this is just one of the examples of detachment, which would mean that the youth as a whole or in a larger aspect would have to become self-reliant and approach other methods of caring for themselves while staying hidden from their toxic homes as they took to the streets to find solace and sustain themselves through ways such as survival sex and prostitution as a primary means homeless Latino youth have of either exchanging sex for shelter, food, or earning money, according to Cruz's essay. It's truly saddening to see how the lack of acceptance leads to these measures. So today we've seen how both the film and sex are great examples of how LGBTQ persons of a Latino descent struggle with opening up about their sexuality and, and being respected at home, a place a place that should be nothing but comfort and respect. There's really acceptance within families and, and you can see in the film, Gun Hill Road, how Vanessa's father not only struggled, but refused to accept his son's change in sexuality. This led her to turn to the streets for comfortability, much like the account in Cruz's essay, which further exemplifies how the streets are an outlet for them. I suggest everyone takes the time to visit these pieces to put into physical perspective the reactions of Latin people towards LGBTQ plus people and how it can allow someone to be more aware and mindful of how identifying under this category is another added challenge when coming from an, a minority group and the hardships experienced from within society can also can also fall into the household, causing many members to feel displaced, unwelcome, and isolated. I do believe that with modernization and more education, the acceptance of LGBTQ plus people in Latin culture is definitely improving, but there's still a long way to go as it has turned from a forbidden subject to simply an unspeakable one. As the subject of such relations and people who fall under this category is still seen as sort of taboo. So I myself have a moment that I experienced as a younger child. Well, it wasn't necessarily pertaining to me, but to my family. So my family is on the Puerto Rican side of my family. I have three cousins who all identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community. And they are in relationships, but they're kind of kept hidden versus my other cousins who are straight. They're like significant others are loudly and proudly welcomed into the family. But when they're not in this, you know, in a typical relationship between a man and a woman, and it's, let's say, for example, like my cousins between a man and a man, their partner is called or seen as a friend to the kids and to the other family members to not make it uncomfortable. Um, so obviously, this is a way of like kind of accepting, you know, their identity and their partner, but it's also still not addressing it as the way it should be. And there's this amazing quote by Ellie Wiesel. And he once said, neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And I see that this quote is really powerful for both these texts and both that um, in-person experience that I had. So thank you for tuning into our podcast. Thank you. Have a good day. Hello everyone, my name is Paulina. My name is Caitlin. And my name is Alexis. And welcome to the impact of Latinx communities in New York. Hey,
Okay, guys. So, Caitlin's going to start off by introducing the topic. Caitlin. So, today we're going to be talking about the New York Rican movement. Wait, wait, wait. What's the New York Rican? Yeah, what's that about? (laughs) (laughs) Girl, Girl, come on. What's that about? So, a New York Rican is a person... I'm sorry. It don't matter. A New York Rican is a person of Puerto Rican birth or descent who's from New York, a.k.a. me. Right. So, the New York Rican movement was a cultural and intellectual movement that involved poets, writers, musicians who are all Puerto Rican. So, this originated around the 1960s and early 1970s. This movement was meant to bring awareness to the Puerto Rican experience in the U.S. In the Raza essay by Ed Morales, he discusses the hardships of the Latinx community. For example, race wars and redefining their identity in this new place. During this time, discrimination was extremely prevalent. For example, in 1967 in East Harlem, riots took place against the police brutality that was widespread. Afterwards, this inspired uprisings of many people coming together to create change and to go against the inequality that was being faced. Okay, so who was the one that, um, like, who was a civil, who was a civil rights group like that? Was like the Black Panthers, the oh, wasn't that the Young Lords? Was it? Yes, the Young yeah. Lords. Oh, right, right, right. Alexa, I think you know about that. Yeah. So, for example, like Ed Morales said. Um, New York Ricans had a big effect on politics, like, for example, the Young Lords. They took action to fix issues in their neighborhoods. Um, Hispanic communities at the time had to deal with a lot of issues, like yeah. lead paint poisoning. Wow. Um, no garbage being collected in their in their that house. Is, that's crazy. I can imagine. No access time. to medical treatment. So if they got sick, that's it. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, and based on an article by Tina Bettina, mm. um, the Young Lords, who were actually inspired like the Black Panthers, like Paulina said, um, they took action by burning garbage, taking over a hospital, and providing medical treatment to their community, and creating the People's Church, as well as Palante, which was a newspaper that used images to explain their messages to people in the community who don't speak English. Um, they were inspired to take action by the history of Latinx oppression and the movements, music, and poetry that came before them. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, be- but right before I even mention that, I just want to add a comment. Like, I just feel like, you know, we've been fighting, Black people has been fighting for their rights for a very, 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 very long time. So I hope people don't, like, you know, they'll be so ignorant and be like, what should I be fighting for? What's going on? Why y'all always want to be fighting? Because we have a reason to fight. We we fighting for our equality, our rights. We're standing up. Like, movements inspire other movements and then so on and so forth. And, you know, I hope one day we just get what we want because we've been fighting for so long. But I just want to add on to Miss Caitlin when she was referring back to the Rasa interpreted by Ed Morales, I feel like in that, I guess, article, in that article, um, he talked about the identity of New Yorican and what does being New Yorican mean and how does that affect your identity, my identity, Alexis' identity. And I feel like throughout the 
passage, he talked about, you know, the origin, like, in 1960s and 70s, a huge population of Puerto Ricans, but let's not forget other cu cultures like Mexicans, African Americans came to, to the U.S. to follow the ideology of the American dream. You know, we're people that are coming from a different place. They migrated to the U.S. to get, you know, equality rights, right, but once they get here, it's like 10 times worse, right, it's 10 times worse, they would be discriminated against, stereotyped as criminals and segregated, so it's just like, how you leave one country and come to another, and, you're ex and you get treated 10 times worse than you did before that, like, that's crazy. Anything with add on? Yeah, I wanna add on to what you were saying. Right. Um, many of these people they they're coming for jobs and unfortunately they were also taken advantage of mm. when trying to get these jobs because many of them couldn't even speak English. Exactly. So, you know, it was unfortunate during this time, but this was very common and this is what made people want to fight for equality. And for them to have the same opportunities as everyone else. Yeah, and I just want to add on to what you, the comment that you just made. Like, this is why, like, other um, civil rights groups, such as the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, came about because this is all going on in low-income communities. And back then, during the 1960s and 70s, it was way harder than this. You think COVID and Corona was hard? Like, no. Like, dealing with um, racial discrimination and people judge you because of the color of your skin or even being a woman on top of that is just, like, it's really unfairly. So to come here, just to pick it back for what I said about the article and my thoughts, um, being discriminated against, stereotyped as criminals, I can imagine what they people at that time had to go through. Alexis, so, would you like to add on? Yeah, I wanted to add on and like talk about the spoken word that we saw in class because right. that was a good one. Um, especially the one called accents. Mm -hmm. Um, speaking about like how our mothers feel like they have to stick with the women in their community right. because they're not necessarily accepted by other communities. Yeah. Um, I think all three of us at this table can agree. Like having immigrants in your family ha comes with a lot of issues right. and seeing that firsthand really gives this like a different meaning to us because we get to see how our ancestors fought for the rights that we get to enjoy now yeah. even though there's still more to fight for right. you know they made a lot of progress yeah i like how denise Foreman started off her um spoken word by saying her mother's accent is like a shotgun i feel like that caught my attention honestly because i never thought you know she would put that together and when i think of shotgun it's like boom in your face so now that i you know took my time and analyzed it a little bit more I could see how she put those things together because when you hear my mom speak her uh, Espanol, her you know her broken English, she it's like all up in your face, you know, like it's there, like you can really spot that on, and you could tell like, oh, okay, she's not from here, she's from somewhere else, and you know that comes with you know judgments, that comes with ignorant comments, like you know she's not smart enough or she's dumb or she's she's not capable of doing other things and yeah um Kayden, would you like to add on yeah i'll add on so i like how also 
in the text, mm. she speaks about, well, in the poem, she speaks about different words, such as, like, she goes, oh, strawberry, strawberry, right. cookie, cookie. <laughs> right. So it's, like, simple things like that, that, in a way, this poem helps you realize and appreciate, like, family that they've come from, you know, these countries, like Puerto mm-hmm. Rico, for example, and they're trying to, like, to assimilate, find their way. Like, yeah, yeah, so assimilate. Yeah, so that's the word I'm looking They're trying to assimilate, and they're trying to, like, Damn, I lost what I was going to say. <laughs> I know. I, I get what you're trying to say. Like, they're yeah. trying to find a way to make yeah. it in this society, right. which yeah. can be very hard. Right. Yeah, I rem- that just takes me back when I first got here. Um, I was three years old, and I'm looking at the tall buildi- buildings. And I was just like, wow, because I, can- I was... I was born at the Dominican Republic, and that's, you know, it was a completely different atmosphere. And when I came here, everything was so pretty and so big and the skyscrapers. But I did see, like, people looking at me like, uh-uh, who this girl? Like, why she looking like that? Why she dressed like that? And I just feel like, you know, growing up, I had, like, an identity crisis because I just didn't fit in with my culture. Like, I'm Dominicana, and... When, like, you know, towards, like, you know, pre-K, kindergarten, I went to the black community. Even though Dominican is black, whether Dominicans admit it or not, um, I went to the black community because I just feel like I could relate to you 10 times more because I am a Dominican going through Dominican struggles already for people uh, assuming that I'm just making um judgments based off the way that I speak my speak English and the way that I look and then when I feel like another layer on top of that discrimination was just being black like people assuming that oh you're dirty you're just stupid and dumb and just you know it's just I just felt like I didn't I don't know I didn't belong in my um community in Dominican and the Dominican community but as elementary school when I um you know, I started to get older. I, you know, found my way back to the Dominican community, you know, Dominican friends, and just, you know, started to live it there. <laughs> yeah, and that reminds me of the Elizabeth Acevedo, um, Afro- Afro-Latina, where she had to, you know, she made a reference about how she had to straighten her hair to look like a Barbie. Like, I felt like I had to straighten myself up when I was talking to certain people because, they didn't understand where I was coming from. They don't know who I am. They don't know my background or my story. So, right. Yeah. And speaking about that same um, spoken word poem, like, I feel like I've dealt with similar issues. You know, I'm from Costa Rica, and mm-hmm. growing up, um, feeling kind of separated from both sides of my culture right. because on one side, it would be at home, and we only speak Espanol at home. So right. I know that's one thing I'm always going to come back to. But at the same time, I felt like I was becoming a different person in school and outside because just to be honest, my culture was not accepted. Like Mm. that wasn't normal. That wasn't what was cute in school. Mm. So I kind of had to fit into the styles that was popular and the way of talking that was popular at the time. But I feel like as I've gotten older, I've like been able to find that balance where I can still be connected to my culture without, you know, feeling like I have to become somebody else right. every time I have right. to leave the house. Right. You know, thank God for education because I just, I just feel like, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the more that you learn about your culture, the more that you realize the importance of it. Like, you know, the rhythm, the beats, you know, um, our beautiful flag, food, everything. This culture is not just Dominican culture, but cultures in general. Once you, you know, do your research and just learn more and more and more and more and more, and you're surrounded by that, you just become fascinated. And sometimes we can get a little bit thrown off because of society and then, you know, trying to be white or trying to, like, fit in into a place where, you know, you don't come from. Kaylin, how do you feel about that? Like, do you, how was you, like, being raised and, you know, how you was growing up? Do you have some struggles going, going up? <laughs> so I was raised to always appreciate where I came from. Mm, okay. But unfortunately, because right. I'm more of a white-passing Latina, right. I did have, in a way, um, a form of, like, identity crisis. Mm, okay. However... I realized the more I spend time with family, I realize how important mm. it is to keep in touch with your culture. Right. Because right. we have to realize, especially as a Puerto Rican um, girl living in New York, um, many Puerto Ricans, they didn't have a great impact on New York City culture today with right. their salsa music, right. the hip hop. And my parents, yeah. they grew up in, well, specifically my father grew up in New York during the 70s mm, when yeah. all this stuff was happening. So it's really, like, interesting to hear, right. like, first account stories of mm. what he went through. And he's been in situations yeah. and these riots before wow. with these cops. So, like, I've heard mm. these stories. And this is, you know, it's important to not forget the past right. so we can right. learn from not mistakes. The and we use that as a way to, like, come together and move forward. Yeah. Right. Okay, but, so that yeah, let me ask you a quick question like did your identity crisis was it similar to um, me and Alexis stories or was it different in a way? It was similar to um what both of you guys were saying because it's hard to um feel connected when you're not you're not exactly growing up in yeah, where right. everyone else right. grows up like in the country that you originate from. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's a beautiful thing because it's right. like, it's a mix of both cultures. Mm -hmm. New, York, New York City culture is its own culture because yeah. you get the impact of not only our culture, you get, you get the impacts of the Mexican culture, yeah. the yeah. Peruvian culture, right. Honduran culture, the black culture. And then what you realize from that is that we're all very similar right. in many ways. No, I asked that is because, you know, you said you was like, you know, you are a white passion, like Latina and you know, when right. they people look at you, they're like, oh, you're white. So, you know, you belong to us. You don't belong to the negritos. And right. you know what I'm saying? So that's interesting that you, even though you are a white passing Latina, you still was able to, you know, have the same experiences like, as that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, just to add on to what Caitlin said, like, about us being able to experience everyone's culture, um, like they said in the spoken word, our culture is like a sancocho. Right. It's a mixture. Like a Dominican, a Puerto Rican, right. a Costa Rican. Right. We all come from completely different countries. But we have very similar experiences, as you can tell. Right. And we all have, 
you know, stories about how this, like, how this history has affected us. So I feel like that's really powerful, and it's really proof to show that, like, no matter what country you're from or mm-hmm. what culture you're in, right. we really are the same people, and we really are one culture. Right. And that's on period, okay? Period. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, for, um, thank you guys for listening to our podcast. Just remember, always remember, like, you not just one culture you are mixed with different cultures um new yorkian is just not one culture it's not puerto rican it's um it's a mix of dominican cuba um give me some give me there's somebody i can't even count unfortunately the european mix (laughs) yeah unfortunately but you know we don't really jack that but yeah just remember that we just remember where you came from always remember just stick to your roots that's the best way never forget um your history because when you forget your history it's like kind of forgetting who you are and what you stand for. So just to end on that note, I'm going to play Cecilia Cruz. Azúcar. Bye, guys. Thanks again to our students for being willing to share their work and contributing to this special episode. Join us again next week when we'll share two more student projects. As I mentioned at the beginning, beginning in February, we'll be back with fresh episodes by Rojo and myself. This season, we'll be prioritizing Afro-Latinidad. Our first episode will tackle both television and film. We'll be considering intersectional representation in the FX series Pose and the film I Like It Like That. In the meantime, let us know what you think. Share thoughts with us. You know, you can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latinx Visions. Or you can send us an email at latinxvisions at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify. It really helps with getting new listeners. Thanks again to all the students who participated, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>